Are recording? Yeah. Yeah, it says recording in process. Kimoda, and welcome to Quarantine Comics, where this week we'll be talking about, you guessed it, Marvel Man, a.k.a. Miracle Man. Uh, the publication history of Marvel Man is really complicated, and we're not going to detail all of it in this podcast, but in short, Marvel Man was created in the 1950s as a blatant ripoff of Captain Marvel, and that's the one about a boy named Billy Botson who says Shazam and transforms into a full-size superhero. In the 1980s, Alan Moore started writing- AKA, his, AKA, the original writer. The original writer started writing his Marvel Man story in an anthology called Warrior. It was anthologized, colorized, renamed Miracle Man by a company called Eclipse to avoid a lawsuit from Marvel Comics. Then Eclipse collapsed, or it eclipsed. Uh, the book went out of print. Nobody knew who had the rights to it. And there was a legal battle between Neil Gaiman, who'd started writing issues of Marvel Man, and Todd McFarlane, who created Spawn. In 2009, Marvel finally got the rights to Marvel Man, and it reprinted it, albeit a kind of shitty version without Alan Moore's name at Moore's request. He's he's accredited as original writer, as Roman alluded. Uh, and today we're going to talk about Moore's Marvel Man run. So I'm Ryan Joe. I'm Roman Segel. And for the next 40 minutes, we're going to pretend we know what we're talking about. Today, our guest reviewer is Chandler Clang Smith. The author of the novel The Sky is Yours and my friend and former uh, graduate school classmate. And I wanted Chandler on the show today because of her interest in subjects and stories originally designed, designed for kids, but that have been reappropriated so that they examine adult themes. Her novel, for instance, is about kids fighting dragons, but it's definitely not a YA read. Uh, so Chandler, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is awesome. So I, I was kind of wondering about your interest in using kids' mediums to explore adult topics. There are definitely like YA tropes that I draw from in The Sky is Yours, but I'm really kind of um, genre agnostic. I kind of always just reach for whatever genre I feel like might be able to uh, kind of house the energy that, I, that I'm looking to put in the story. So I mean, I think that like one thing that I was uh, definitely interested in with uh, The Sky is Yours is that one of the three main characters is this... Uh, this young man named Duncan Ripple, who sort of is a hero in his own mind, he um, is the equivalent of like a YouTube celebrity. And um, he really like falls hook, line and sinker for uh, the this, this sort of world of propaganda um, in the city that's attacked by dragons around joining the fire department. And I, I think that there's something really interesting about the way that... Um, the way that stories about heroism that are marketed to young people can sometimes get them to act on behalf of, uh, you know, larger like institutions like the, you know, in the case of the, the army, the U.S. government, for example, that aren't necessarily really, you know, keeping their needs in mind. So I, I, I think that that idea of there being something kind of brainwashy and propagandistic about um, certain stories of heroism that are marketed to young people is really present in Miracle Man. And that was something I found fascinating here. One thing I've always loved about science fiction is it's a bait and switch, right? Whether it's the X-Men saying, we're talking about people born with superpowers, but it's really a commentary on race or um, Star Trek or a lot of science fiction is social commentary. Is that kind of what you're attempting to do? Modern social commentary through your fiction? 
yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I definitely think of fiction as a funhouse mirror on our world. So um, even though I write speculative fiction that doesn't have an obvious, you know, it's, it's not like a obviously based in reality in, a, in an autobiographical or historical way, like, sure. I feel like the reason that an image will like persist with me or, a, you know, a certain genre will seem like it's really potent is always because it does connect to something that I've observed. Robin, you and I had both, I think, read Marvel Man, Miracle Man uh, before. And so, you know, I'm just kind of curious, Robin, what was your take when you first read it and, and you know, kind of rereading it now? How are you reacting to it? Yeah, um, positively, I guess. Um, no, the first time I read it, probably I would have been in college, which is almost 20 years ago, which makes me feel old. But a friend of mine had, you know, read about this really quirky thing by Alan Moore, who was starting to come back into the zeitgeist of the guy who did Swamp Thing, the guy who did V for Vendetta. And this is before all the movies were made, right, of his material. And he bought all the original issues on eBay. My friend spent far too much money on these things. How much, how much did he pay? Because those things aren't cheap. How much How much did he pay for all the I'm, original issues? You know, I should ask him. But um, in fact, we'll, we will ask him when we have him on the podcast at some point. But I'm guessing to the tune of hundreds of dollars an issue. Like this was a stupid expenditure of money. Like, cause we didn't have a lot of money back then. We were kids. Um, I remember him loaning them to me and, you know, flipping through the original pages, recognizing how much money my, my friend spent on these. And there was already kind of this predisposed notion that these are special. And more importantly, because I knew, again, this is a pre Wikipedia era. I knew some of the stories that you had mentioned about it, like out of print um, all of the copyright, blah, 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 that had gone on. So I, I knew this was something special. This was almost something like a banned book that I was reading. Um, so it was so hard to get a hold of. And it was subversive um, to me. It was, I believe I would have read it right around the same time I was reading Kingdom Come. And this, and you know that these comics came out in the 80s. They came out in Britain. And that there is this... Not, it's not genre commentary, um, but it is it is the most nonfiction take on a comic book that I had read at the time. And that was kind of what was going through my head as I was rereading it and trying to, I literally reread it over the last three days. It is, through the eyes of 1980, this is really what would happen if Superman existed in our world and why they would exist in our world. Even though there's interdimensional aliens and all of these things, the idea of scientists fucking things up, messing with kids' minds, and and then once that power becomes realized, what the actual impact and effect would be. I do think it's a little optimistic, which is kind of ironic, but um, that this is what they would do. You know, in later years, folks like Mark Millar and others would do a complete left turn if this is a right turn on, like, you don't use these powers for good. But it holds up. It really, really holds up. In fact, um, maybe it's because volume three um which i just read like finished about an hour ago almost reads like poetry to me um the way alan moore just has like this really elegant verbal diarrhea that i'm like wow i can't replicate this i and he just spits these words out so long way long-winded way of saying it holds up the subversive nature is there it reads like nonfiction to me in a way even though there are some fantastical elements the, the mystique is what always you know, got me interested in, in Marvel Man. And I did, I bought the graphic novels that were out of print. And I, again, I spent too much um, money on them. I, I first heard about Marvel Man. I think, honestly, it was um, it was that comics magazine, Wizard, 
which I've referenced a few yeah. times on this podcast, and I always kind of diss it because it is kind of I have always you know the guide back, to it's comics. A very yeah, but it was always a very immature book right where they were always kind of talking about like which bit blades boobs and stuff like that but it was it was the entertainment weekly or the usa today of comic book fans yeah that, that's a great way of putting it and but at the same time it definitely introduced me to shit that i wouldn't have been, wouldn't be familiar with and there was this there was this you know one of these top 10 lists of top 10 most evil villains and Car- kid marvel man was one of them and i just got really intrigued but who this who this weird guy is and i couldn't find it I couldn't find anything about Marvel Man. Of course, the internet wasn't particularly well populated back then. It was just probably about 1995, 96. Um, I couldn't find anything about him, and I was just super intrigued. I couldn't find the book anywhere. Also, at that time, I had been reading an old anthology. Uh, my uncle collected like all of these old comic books of Captain Marvel. So I was familiar with like Captain Marvel from the 1940s to the 1970s. And so this, I knew, was like a really odd take on that that Captain Marvel character. So that also really kind of really kind of grabbed me. You know, and and, and then on reading the book, you know, it it has some of those moments of stark realism in terms of like how it, emotional realism, I think, in terms of how people would yeah. react if they, you know, ha- were were super powered. Um at the same time, there were I think a lot of problems still with this book. It almost feels sort of like there are things that Alan Moore is experimenting with themes that you see crop up in his later work but you know it's it's still it's he's kind of he's definitely a young writer when he's doing marvel man and he's still figuring things out so you see him you see kind of like the uh the foundation for stuff that he's going to do later better but at the same time there is a tremendous emotional punch to to marvel man um just just given how how he's taking something that was so kind of optimistic and almost kind of dragging it dragging it down and showing kind of like the the darker psychologies that could you know that that could overrun it Chandler I know you have not read it yeah no so so this is really interesting because um it seems like for both of you this is this sort of foundational text that you you know sort of thought of as this uh you you saw it correctly as the genesis of a lot of stuff that followed but um so I really have not read a lot of superhero comics um I think Watchmen actually might be the only superhero comic that I've read. So I'm really approaching this completely ass backwards. Like um, I am already coming from a really, you know, genre fluid understanding of storytelling. Um, very like, you know, that that like my assumption with something like this is that it's going to be postmodern. I'm entering it with like that, um, that expectation. And so I, I was thinking as I was reading it actually that um, – I feel like it's it's kind of what I think of as the Citizen Kane effect, where something has been, you know, something was so groundbreaking that it's been imitated so many times yeah. by other artists who have followed. And maybe even, you know, like in the case of Alan Moore, it seems like with Watchmen, he was drawing very much from the same well. Th- then when you go back to the, you know, th- that primary text, it's not necessarily as startling to you as it was to readers at the time. Um but that said, I agree that there are these moments where I really like how bodily and um, sensual and neurotic this, these characters are. Like they they do actually feel like living, breathing human beings, and that's something that I definitely was really drawn to about this. But 
Yeah, it's like I actually had not even heard of Marvel Man or Miracle Man, period, until I agreed to do this podcast. So I was coming at it from such a such a radically different angle that, of course, like my experience is going to be different. What's interesting is when it's interesting that you mentioned Watchmen, because Mm -hmm. um, as a non-comic book reader, but who's someone I I often tell folks that I think Watchmen should be like required reading in American schools and high schools. I think it's a novel first, a a comic book second. Most people have heard of that one. And to be clear, most people still haven't heard of Miracle Man or Marvel Man just because it was the thing before Watchmen. And I do think there is the similar to Watchmen. People put it up on a pedestal, but more Alan Moore, he's a weird guy, but his stuff usually sticks the landing. I've, I've only had a few instances where I was like, OK, you went a little far here, including in this. Well, I want to I want to dig a little onto your comic book knowledge. So. Like, do you at least understand like the pop culture tropes like that Superman and Batman are from one place and Spider-Man and Iron Man are from another place? Or oh, yeah, definitely. Familiar? Like, I mean, I, I'm familiar with, um, you know, with the films like uh, I haven't seen most of the Marvel films. And actually, I haven't seen most of the recent DC films because I've really only seen like the Christopher Nolan Batman movies. Okay, yeah. um, but I'm definitely very aware of the, you know kind of the expectations that you approach a superhero story with, like um, that you usually don't have like a several pages long scene of someone giving birth, for example. That seems right. like that's, that Might still have been a first. Might have been pretty a first. startling and groundbreaking. But yeah, I mean, I definitely, I've absorbed the, the tropes of the superhero genre from our culture, but um, I don't know. It, it's sort of like, I, I think of an interview with Jonathan Lethem that I heard once where he was uh, talking about how he saw Yellow Submarine before he was really familiar with the Beatles. You know, it's like that you can often kind of get the cartoon version of something in your brain um, before you've actually visited the originals. So I've never read like a Superman comic, but I feel like I have a pretty clear sense of what they're like. Yeah. Or um, and I've seen like, you know, like the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies like, um, you know, I, I have I have that familiarity with some of that stuff. But it's often several steps removed from the the source. So what guys like Moore did, um, and a few other folks like Neil Gaiman, etc., is they came into the superhero genre in the comic book medium, and were like, okay, we're not going to tell these very linear, serialized superhero stories. We're going to turn this thing on its head. And you know, they then evolved on to go do things that weren't superhero. But you know, Watchmen and Miracle Man, even Sandman, are um, all just kind of examples of doing that. So I guess. Chandler, uh, coming in it with fresh eyes, what did you, I mean, what you, would you recommend this to a friend? What did you think about it? Did What did you hate about it or um, what did you like about it? Well, I really didn't hate anything about it. I mean, I, I guess that like, um, so, you know, because of my interest in, you know, taking a genre, an existing genre that has sort of character types and then thinking about like, what does it actually feel like to be this person? That's you know, a basic part of the the way that I often approach my writing. Um, I'll sort of think of like, a, a, you know, a sort of existing genre paradigm and the character types who populate it. And then I'll think, instead of thinking, well, how do I just swap out a completely different type of person for this type of person? I think more like, if someone behaved that way, why would they be doing it? So for that reason, I've always kind of been drawn to the postmodern reinterpretations of, uh, of superhero stories. So I've, you know, I've seen movies like, uh, like super and kick-ass for example, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. which definitely seem like when I read this, I'm like, Oh, okay. That's something that's like in the DNA of those stories and where they come from. And then Watchmen is, um, actually one of my, yeah. I mean, it's like one of my favorite books. I actually also really like the Zack Snyder film adaptation. Um, and 
for exactly the same reason, because it feels like this is coming from a place of a love that I don't share, you know, an obsession that I don't share with, um, you know, this encyclopedic knowledge of who these characters are, how they developed over time, the costumes, the poses, like all of that stuff. But then it's, it's, it's like, uh, you know, being like, what if there, what if there is a real human being inside of that costume? And I, I really love and respect like that approach. So I definitely see that here as well. Um, I, I guess if there's something that like, again, to say that like Citizen Kane effect of, um, you know, it, it doesn't seem necessarily as fresh to me as it probably did to people back in the 1980s when these books first came out, is that sometimes when, you know, Moore is kind of pulling the mask off of something, the thing that's underneath the mask is also a trope that I'm familiar with. So for example, when it turns out that everything that they, you know, all of these memories that they have of these whiz-bang adventures were a lie and that they were being brainwashed, they were being brainwashed by this Nazi doctor who himself <laughs> seems like a cartoon, you know, caricature. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not actually saying that as a criticism necessarily, but it's I, uh, Breaking that... news, Chandler doesn't like Nazis. Uh, <laughs> people are going to be protesting that for years. Um, no, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that you can't have a kind of arch-villain archetype in, in a story that also has realistic characters. I think that it's actually really interesting to work in different tonal registers at different points in a story, depending on what you're trying to do. But it was something that felt like it, it felt almost a little bit funny to me that it's it's sort of saying, of, cor- oh, of course, it's a Nazi. Of course, it's a Nazi. Yeah. And, and and that, you know, this character is driven by this quest for immortality, which is also something that, you know, seems like a very classic supervillain kind of motivation. Um, so I think I think there's something something that I really, really love about Watchmen is that I actually feel like whenever it kind of has a surprise for you, that surprise is jarring. I mean, um, I, I think like Adrian Veidt, for example, is a yeah. character who, you know, holds on to a lot of his superhero-ness even once he also is doing the supervillain thing. Like, you know, it's like those those two things end up actually well, well, the best villains. The, the best villains are the ones who don't think they're a villain at all, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, and and I think like one of the things that's like really satisfying about that in Watchmen is that at least you know um, I haven't yet seen the the new HBO series, but he he's not punished for that within the scope of the story. It's like um, it, it sort of breaks that Hayes Code assumption that you know that wrongdoers will will end up getting punished even if they wreak a lot of havoc along the way. Um, you know, he he gets away with it. And it's it's uh there's something about that that's really that's really chilling and that kind of breaks the moral universe in a way that I feel like, you know, the the Nazi doctor in here doesn't have that same kind of like um unsettling challenge that remains with you after you close the book, you know? Well, I mean, that's probably why uh, Adrian Veidt or Ozymandias is ranked higher in the wizard ranking of all-time bad villains. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm making that up. I'm just <laughs> Actually, I think he was. I think he was ranked number two <laughs> or number one. <laughs> totally. Um, well, Robin, how about for you? When you, you know, what, what didn't work as much when you reread uh, uh, Marvel Man? Yeah, I, I think it was volume two when... I mean, we made like a hard left into interdimensional alien sex for a little bit oh my God, in, yeah. in volume two. But I was like, okay, I'm I'm muddling through this. I'm, I just had to plow through the alien stuff because I didn't know where it was going. And by the time I got to volume three, I was like, oh, shit, he was he's planting seeds. But again, 
what you said earlier, Ryan, is that this is more really finding himself, even like using a Nazi doctor. haha. Although he was a, a, I think, Latin America crime lord who leaned on the Nazis for funding. Right. He, he had then teamed up with Hitler. And yeah, yeah. like. Um, well, who doesn't? Um, of course. Know. Yeah. Uh, no, but uh, yeah, I think it was the middle of volume two. I it's this sounds terrible. I kind of want to go back and read volume two, kind of like if you've watched The Wire. Everyone who watches The Wire the first time hates season two. It's the weakest of all five seasons. But then as soon as you're done watching The Wire and you recognize it's one of the greatest shows of all time, you're like, oh, wait, season two actually was about more broadly about the labor movement and labor in America. And there's something really telling here. And so that's how I feel about volume two, um, which was probably the weakest link for me. Well, volume two is also the backstory. I mean, that's basically where you get the full introduction of who Marvel Man is, uh, why he is the way he is, and who was the who the puppet master is. Um, yeah. So there's there's a lot, and I will also say artistically, it's probably the weakest. Uh, I think he cycles through about three or four different artists in volume two. Uh, versus volume three, he's got John Toddleben, who more teamed up with for for Swamp Thing, and then volume yeah. one. Uh, it's got that. It's got that great uh, volume one. The art is really strong. It's got Alan Davis, and I forgot who the other guy is. The thing I started to appreciate in my late twenties, early thirties was when an artist and a writer team up for the long run. When they're like, um, like you see this on Saga, you saw it on Brian Bendis's Spider Man, where for like a hundred issues, which that's about ten years, um, you have an artist writer team that are in it to win it together, and they're literally dancing with each other. With these old books, like I kind of give the art a pass. I really do. Like some of the pages are amazing, but when it's weak, I'm like, well, I'm not here for I'm not here for the art. I'm not here for the pictures. Unfortunately, it's a vehicle. I think for me, it's like Marvel Man. It started out so strong, and it felt like artistically like something special. And then there's that middle series where it looks a little bit cartoonish, and that kind of like drew me out of it. As you were saying, I wasn't. I was. I was kind of signed up to Marvel Man to see Alan Moore's spin on that character, but it was something you know that kind of weakened. The run on the book. If we're talking about things we don't like, that bait and a switch, it upsets me and I got past it really fast. Another example of that bait and switch is, and sorry, Chandler, we're going a little um, deep on this, but like- No, go for it. More recently, the new X-Men run, Grant Morrison, Frank Quietly, beautiful, amazing dancing with with the writer and the artist. And then six issues in or 10 issues in, Frank Quietly leaves, you know? And now you're stuck with some other asshole. Like, I think he and Grant Morrison work really well together. Kind of what you were saying, Roman, about the artist and the writer really knowing each other. The writer can write to the artist's strength. I was actually talking to another comic book artist uh, about what the hell was going on with Frank Quietly and, and Grant Morrison. And yeah. I was asking, like, what, what, why after Frank Quietly left X-Men, they signed on another guy uh, whose art was like really sloppy. It was like a 180 in terms of quality. And I was just, I remember asking, what the hell is going on? And... The way Grant Morrison writes, he, he he kind of likes to do these really complicated scenes involving a lot of perspective. And Frank Quietly is really, really, really good at that. But the next guy who took over Frank Quietly after whatever reason, Quietly couldn't maintain a monthly schedule, wasn't good at that. But by then, you know, the scripts had already been written. You can't really change but, but, too much. But, but to me, this is the, either don't sign up to do it. Like an art takes longer than... I apologize in advance, Chandler, but my observation (laughs) of comic book writing is I see comic book writers writing like 10 series at once because they basically binge and write like 12 issues of a series in one month and then go do the next one. But you see writers working on 12 books at once and artists are a little bit more rate limited, like literally by the physics of their hand. And as a result, yeah, you think see guys like Frank Quiley, even Todd McFarlane back in the day, um, you know, falling behind schedule. 
And what I would rather have happen, and I'm doing this with a podcast, right, um, is bank up a lot of content. And maybe that doesn't work in superhero world with monthly deadlines, but like bank it up so you can deliver the full thing, so you can run the marathon together. Um, it, well, I think that, more- I mean... That kind of depends on how the writer writes, right? I mean, you look at Alan Moore's scripts. If you ever just look at it, even Grant Morrison's scripts, Warren Ellis's scripts, they are really, really, really detailed. Like they look like novels versus like how Stan Lee used to do it. He would just kind of sketch out a story. The writer would just write it really quickly. Yeah. Yeah, And then you come in and and be like, okay, I'll just write the dialogue now that you have the art. So it was meant to that example. And and I do want to get us back to Marvel Man. I think about Warren Ellis. Um, If you ever read his webcomic Freak Angels, he paired with one artist for the whole thing. And maybe he found a fast artist or they, they mapped it out. And it's like, this is the schedule. We will take breaks. Fiona Staples on saga with Brian Vaughn, best comic out on the books right now. They're taking a break for a whole year and they're not just recharging their, their brains, but they're probably catching up too. And I'd rather you do that versus ditch the artist and find someone sloppy after. And so again, the weak thing in to bring it back to miracle man, um, the art was inconsistent, but again, I wasn't in it for the art. I was here to read, you know, Alan Moore's weird take on the Uber bench. So, and honestly, I misremembered the way I read it. I knew there was some, I couldn't remember if it was utopian or dystopian, which way it went at the end. Um, you can kind of make a, you can kind of argue both ways. Yeah, but I, I read it more optimistically this time around because I'm so angry about the state of the world right now, and I just kind of want a neo-fascist to correct all the problems, a moral neo-fascist to kind of like correct everything right now, because whether it's the climate, nuclear proliferation, the pandemic, uh, our leaders are making all the wrong decisions. And so to watch um, Miracle Man and Miracle Woman make all these decisions because the world's kind of pussyfooting around it. Well, no, that's interesting because, you know, at the one hand, it looks like a utopia, but you don't really know for sure because Miracle Man and Miracle Woman are so detached from their own humanity and so detached from humanity at that point. Yeah, they call us cats. That it's <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't really know you know how people are actually reacting to. Well, yeah, history trans- is written by the winner, and, and the narrator is the winner, right? I I feel though that um, the the scene with Liz, um, Miracle Man's original wife, yeah. um, is really there as a kind of. I don't know. I don't want to say it's a condemnation of it, but it seems like that character, the way that she's been depicted throughout the series, she's always been the voice of reason. She's the one that is, you know, the most, the most sort of grounded and relatable. In, yeah. Yeah. Relatable. And, and it is a kind of reader stand in, or at least that was the yeah. way I interpreted her Robin. in the first she's book. The yep. Because yeah, there's, there's that, that moment when he's telling his story and he's like, Liz, you're laughing at my life. Like, you know, and it's like, of course, like the, the reader is thinking how ridiculous this is. And she's the one who gives voice to that. So I think that then at the end, when she also is saying again, how ridiculous this is, or at least she's, she's asserting some real doubts about like the humanity of the system that they've, they've set up. I I feel like that wouldn't be there if we weren't supposed to take it to heart. I don't think it's supposed to say that like, um, that this might not be an improvement over the society that humans have built for themselves, but an improvement can still be, can still be a kind of dystopia, you know, considering what a mess people make. That's fair. And you know, one of the best scenes with Liz, and Mm -hmm. I, I, I hope we can spend some time talking about her because I think, she is the most necessary, realistically depicted person in this book. And uh, the most beautiful scene to me with her 
is when he comes back from the aliens dimensions and he's like, Liz, oh my God, all this amazing stuff. She's like, I don't give a fuck. I'm done. I got to get out. Fuck this. I'm gone. Like, and to me, that was such one of the most stark, beautiful scenes of like, she's like, I don't care. I'm out. I'm gone. Cause that's what my wife would do to me. If I walked away and did the most amazing startup-y thing, podcasty thing, whatever. And I came home. It's also such a stark contrast to who she was initially, where she's kind of the down to earth one. And then she realized her, her husband is this golden God or can become this golden God. And she's so enthusiastically trying to test his abilities. She's really into yeah. it. Um, they're having great sex, apparently. Uh, sorry, <laughs> Mike Moran. Um, yeah. And then at the end, she is so over it. I mean, she kind of just sinks into this, this, this depression. Despair. Despair. Um, and well, she's only, she only, she's only kind of perked up artificially when her super baby decides to lighten her mood uh, through some sort of, you know, kind of mind control, emotion control. I think that there was a bit of a missed opportunity in her relationship with her daughter. Like, I, I love that moment when Winter starts talking, but I think it would have been way more powerful if it had been a scene where she starts talking to her mom. Um, because she assumes back that on Liz... That, but- yeah, I, no, we, we'll totally argue about it. Like, um, but I, I think that like, you know, she winter assumes that her mom won't be able to handle the fact that she's a super baby. And so she, uh, you know, she withholds that and, and waits until uh, until her dad comes home. And I, I think that there's just even if her mom did reject her, like having a scene where Liz really because I mean, it's one thing for, you know, her marriage to end, but for her to walk away from a child that she had wanted so desperately to have we're told in the first book that they've struggled with infertility and you know that that they've been trying for a really long time and then it's only with like miracle man's magic sperm that this works out um yeah i i just feel like there's something about that that could have been explored and could have been really heartbreaking you know we've seen her give birth to this kid and to see her to see her leave or to see her try to connect and fail, I think that that would just have been so fascinating. Actually, that second point is kind of interesting. She tries to connect and fail because I think it is important that Winter doesn't really give a shit about her mom. Winter yeah, doesn't I want mean, to talk to her because she's just human. I mean, she's and she's so condescending even to her superpowered dad. Which so, I feel like is played a little bit for laughs, right? Did you read it Winter is. that way? It's, yeah. She's kind of a comic character. Yeah. She is, but also I think she's comic because she's just so... Aloof. I mean, there is something horrif- kind of horrifying about Winter, about the control yeah. she takes over both her parents. So even though it's played for laughs, it could very easily tip into 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 horror. I mean, she's controlling her mom's emotions, mm-hmm. um, which kind of kind of gives you a sense of win- how Winter feels about humans. Well, I mean, again, Miracle, Miracle Man and Miracle Woman, uh, Avril, I think they they have their feet in both worlds. They remember humanity, but. Uh, the winter, the daughter, is not of, of humankind. She was born of it, but she was born ascendant, right? She was born a god. These other people lived as humans and became gods. And so she is, and honestly, that's why the aliens give Earth a pass and don't nuke us, because they're like, oh, you know, you have not spontaneously, but intelligent, quote unquote, super intelligent life has manifest here. That's why you guys get a pass, not because you have um, people who became super intelligent. Miracle Woman for me was the biggest uh, missed opportunity because you only get a very brief sense of who she was as a human. And then suddenly she just kind of appears as this, you know, as a super being, another super being who has actually probably surpassed uh, Mike Moran because apparently she kind of remembers her, her entire history. So kind of where has she been 
all this time. It almost kind of begs that question. And she, so she really kind of comes in only when Alan Moore finds it necessary to kind of introduce her, I guess, as a potential mate for for Miracle Man. Well, I mean, I love the choice. That, I love the choice that she made, similar to Kid Miracle Man. She, well, again, they made similar but different choices. They were like, okay, I'm free. I'm going to hide in plain sight. And one chose to literally hide and live an unassuming life and occasionally go flirt with the fun of her powers. But for the most part, she's like, I think she's a doctor or nurse. I'm going to just do this. Whereas Kid Miracle Man was like, I'm going to live in plain sight and, you know, use my powers for capitalistic evil. Yeah, it's it's sort of like what Chandler was saying about Winter and Liz. You know, you could kind of fill in the blanks, but there's a lot that could have been maybe articulated even very briefly there that that wasn't and that's kind of why it feels a little bit like a missed opportunity there's stuff that you kind of almost want some of those questions to be answered miracle woman give they they literally explain everything about her in like five to ten pages you get almost like a complete issue on her versus i think what you guys or specifically ryan what you're looking for you get her backstory yeah you wish but you wish she was you wish she was woven in throughout the whole thing a page on her here a page on her there because that's what you got with everybody else well, I wouldn't say, you know, I wouldn't say I needed her woven in as much as, you know, some of the other characters, but you kind of get her backstory, which is just almost sort of like her Wikipedia entry. Um, <laughs> and then and then you get kind of nothing else afterwards. She's sort of a blank slate in terms of who she is, what she wants, who her char- what her character is actually like. There was that episode of Rick and Morty recently that had the the scene that was making fun of the Bechdel test. I don't know if you yeah, guys yeah, yeah, have that. Yeah, yeah. I have not I'm not I'm not up to date but what so what wait what was the scene oh it's it's just basically like Morty tries to come up with a story on the fly that passes the Bechdel test and what he comes up with does pass the Bechdel test and fails on every other metric um (laughs) of you know coherence and you know like having having believable characters and pretty much everything else like um and I think that I think that there is a lot of truth to that that I think that sometimes people will think strong female characters, I have to sort of tick the boxes of like having, um, having, you know, these characters interact in a certain way to either pass that test or, you know, to have an action, an action moment where like the character does something really badass or, and, and that stuff can feel really superficial. The thing that I always just get frustrated with is when there's an opportunity for conflict that isn't realized. And that was definitely what I saw between Winter and Liz. And I can, I can also see that with, uh, with Miracle Woman that like, um, you know, if if it's that she's had to struggle with some kind of demon in her like, you know, life up to this point um, in the same way that Kid Miracle Man did, but she's actually bested it, then like, why do we not see that dramatized? And then also like she, you know, if, if there's maybe some real conflict between her and Miracle Man about how to enact these plans for their ut- utopian vision of Earth, then like, why not have that argument really play out on the page? There's the moment where he's mean to, I think it's Margaret Thatcher, right? Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. Uh, yeah, he basically uh, hands Margaret Thatcher's ass to her and she's, she's really sad. And then, you know, Miracle Woman's basically like, that wasn't a nice thing to do. Um, but I think it would have been, yeah, it would have been interesting to push on that a little bit more. It's like, maybe she's the one who is the smooth operator politically and Miracle Man is more of the vision person or you know, um, or even vice versa. But I, I think that like that dynamic might have made that that part of the story feel less like a coda and more like a genuine other chapter of, you know, the development of these characters, especially her. So I noticed we haven't even brought up uh, Kid Marvel Man or Kid Miracle Man. Wizards number six, worst villain of 1995. Yeah. <laughs> 
I mean, so he's so he's he's kind of in in. I was gonna say he's kind of an interesting guy. That's sort of kind of an understatement. Uh, I'm just curious what you guys thought of him because you know for the longest time you know Moore is kind of juggling that duality of you know he's I'm got terrified he's of got him. Johnny I'm Bates. Of him. Yeah, the, yeah, and then the the actual kid, you know, especially when he's first introduced, you don't know is he is he not. You know, there's this sort of ambiguity that kind of plays out for a couple of pages and even though it's very very short i think it's very effective the, the statement about like a tiger pouncing like i think i i have to go back and reread it but i'm like uh okay it, it's pretty obvious who he is there's a lot of there's a lot of uncertainty on mike moran's part and sure. you, you kind of know inevitably that yes he is going to become the bad guy but you have mike moran trying to figure out how to work johnny Bates and completely failing um, and then you get this sudden shock of how monstrous he he really is. And then in book two, you have the wrestling between uh, Kid Marvel Man and then his human alter ego, who's really just this scared little boy, Johnny Bates. Um, and then, and then of course, the book three is when Mar- Kid Marvel Man goes on a rampage. When I first read Marvel Man, that rampage was really shocking. Just the, the panels of destruction, uh, the way the bodies are torn apart. It's just really grisly. Rereading it again, the impact was sort of lost because in a way he just become, it's sort of like Alan Moore thinking, let me just think of the worst fucking thing someone can do and have them do it. So it almost became cartoony in how evil it was. I would have said and pornographic, just, honestly. like Violence porn? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and look, that's not a bad thing. It's just, yeah, it's like, what are the desires of violence? And that, that, the, the the lustful nature of some of the violence depicted. And I don't mean that in, I'm not saying Alan Moore's a psychopath. I'm just saying he really got in the mind of a madman with the fucking horror that this guy caused. The one moment that I felt like was, you know, um, where Kid Miracle Man kind of just became, again, kind of crossed that line for me from being a, like an interrogation of a cartoon supervillain to just sort of being one is there's that nurse. And he says like, you know, Oh, you were always kind to me. So I'll let you live. And then he goes back and he's like, then they'll think I'm going soft. And he blows the top of her head off. Um, And it's like all the way to her jaw. What was that? Yeah. That panel. Like I, yeah. Literally no pun intended jaw dropped when I I saw that because yeah, that to me that epitomizes the pornography of violence. Like, and I'm, again, I'm not saying that like it's a bad thing. It communicates the sheer evil of this man. But I think in some ways, it he'd almost seem more evil to me if he retained a little bit of humanity. Because then, I guess that the, the thing that I find most fascinating and disturbing when I read stories about, um, you know, about psychopaths or you know, truly evil characters are those moments of humanity that are still nestled in like, you know, in, in the middle of, uh, of those rampages. Like, um, I don't know. Like I, th- I think like a character like Patrick Bateman, right? Like, you know, he is um, capable of doing similarly evil things. He's not a superhero, so it's not on the same scale, but like, it seems like it's a similar kind of character type, but there are moments of kind of um, despair and panic and, and, you know, even, vulnerability that are woven into him and i think that like giving kid miracle man just a tiny bit of that um having there be some carryover from from johnny bates i think that that just might have made him feel even more potent that said i I still thought he was a really interesting character like i i i do really love the struggle of him trying to keep that that second self like you know at bay for such a long time 
and then only finally like giving in. I actually, I really I actually kind of like that scene with the nurse, that one that you described. Um, I even, even, for me, it was, it's kind of, you see Marvel Man, or Kid Marvel Man kill before, but that's the first time you see him do it to a character who, you know, we've been introduced to before. Uh, the nurse is well-meaning, though not very effective. And he kills somebody who, as he said, you're the only one who is nice to me. And there's also, for me visually, I just really like the way that scene is paced because it's very, it's actually a very, very slow. You see him talk to the nurse in the first panel and then subsequent panels, he just kind of walks down the hall, walks away and the nurse is gratified and then he comes back. And so it's this slow kind of build of this dreadful inevitability. That repetition visually is just really, really effective in slowing down the pace uh, and you see him commit this just this this really awful act almost in slow motion and deliberately he's 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 it's like he he thinks about it toys with her kind of walks off lets her have hope and then comes back and smashes it in every sense of the well word. and in the very last panel um you know some comics like Mark Millar would have just maybe had just the smash scene and the last scene obviously where you see half of her face is gone you see him walking away, walking away, not flying away, walking mm-hmm. away calmly, mm-hmm. methodically. Yeah, this guy, yeah, terrifying, terrifying. There's always just something about the desecration of the face that is terrifying to me. It's because it takes away your identity and it's it's it takes away your your humanity in kind of seeing this woman. You know, we've, we've seen her since book two and then the last time we see her, uh, her face is like smashed open. Um, to me, that was just like, oof. Yeah, it's a, it's a really compelling visual. I think it's just that, Sometimes with with all three of these volumes, I just felt like there were moments where I liked I liked the complexity that we get with uh you know with Mickey Mickey Moran versus Miracle Man, and then even within Miracle Man, we get something that's in the first book. It really seems like you know the language that he uses is always um really poetic and heroic, and and then that starts to over time get more complicated, and and you start to feel you know, we're left on this note of him having some doubt in himself and his vision for the world, it seems like, you know, and I just kind of wanted a little bit more of that graying, you know, graying of the the black and white characters from from sort of the classic comics, like with some of those, those bad guys. I totally get, and we talked about this at the top of the episode, where a good villain is a good character. You know, like they do show the mercy because they don't view themselves as evil. They but Kid Miracle Man to me is an ultimate villain, not a good villain in terms of good character development, because he's just pure evil. He He's more nuanced, nuanced. I don't know how to say that word. Nuanced, nuanced. Oh, God. At the beginning <laughs> in book one, <laughs> because maybe he's like the prowling tiger who he's trying to pretend to be human. Yeah, he's, tra- he's, he's trying to pretend up. to be human. Yeah, but. But the interactions with him subsequently are just pure evil. He's an interesting character, but he's a flat character. But it's just like pure. Oh, that's evil accurate. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Actually, that that actually was maybe that's that line has always stuck with me when Mike Moran when he first meets Kid Miracle Man as an adult, and he says, "Oh, you're just pretending to be human, aren't you?" I mean, that just sent chills down my spine. Like the idea that there's this person here who I'm talking to on this balcony. And they once were human, and they're just pretending to be human now. I mean, for me, that that always just kind of freaked me out. And then once you kind of lose that 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 ambiguity, once you lose that mystery, and you see who he really is by book three, 
I mean, you really actually kind of see it by the end of book one, but um, once you see him really act on it, that's when it becomes more of a like a, a grand guignol sort of thing where it's just sort of about the freak show aspect of the horrors that he can inflict upon humans and, and the city of London. Well, that actually like ties into something that I found really fascinating about the world building here, which is that these alter egos are not, is not a transformation that the person undergoes. It's that they actually like swap bodies like that, that, that there is a different a different entity that is exists in that you know that weird sort of meat locker of uh of of, of body costumes and and they they swap and they share memories but they don't actually they're they're not actually made of the same stuff and i think that there's something about that that felt really like kind of lovecraftian to me um and and that like does sort of allow for the duality with Kid Miracle Man in a way that I might not have accepted if it was if it was actually supposed to still you know physically be Johnny Bates like it is as if he's been replaced by something that is no longer as human. It's like you share the same memories, but you you react differently to them because as you know as as Mike Moran yeah. learns, um, you know Marvel Man is cleverer than him. He well he, the chemical the chemicals are different. Yeah, it's the soul is the same, but it's an equipment upgrade. The brain the synapses, everything. So he's just operating at a higher level. And I think that appears even more so with Bates because I do think yeah. it's the same soul, but it's it's split personality almost. Oh, yeah. One, of, one of the things that really stuck with me at the end was was Michael, Mickey Moran's uh, suicide, which he does without actually really killing himself. Oh, I loved it. it was beautiful. I love that moment. Yeah, it was just such a sad moment where he kind of just says, you know, don't bring me back. And then kind of leaves that, basically leaves that, and he does in that really elegant way. Where it's just like Michael Moran, rest in peace. He for date of birth, date of date of final transformation, and you know he transforms. Marvel Man looks at that note and kind of understands. Is it okay? I'm not to I'm not to bring you back. And that was such a sad. Well, and that was also yeah, kind of the last moment of 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 humanity from that Marvel Man character. Yeah, I really love that that moment, and I love the fact that that world building is in place to like enable that, like you know that it, it does actually feel like a real loss. Um, you know, it, it was similar to how I felt about the conversation with Liz about the utopia at the end, where it feels like, you know, even if even if you can only really see a net positive, and you know that like obviously Miracle Man is better than Mickey Moran. Um, you know, obviously the world that they create is a, a more, you know peaceful and enlightened one but at the same time like something real has been lost and i think that that's really interesting yeah, the moment with liz and then his final moment he says he kind of goes out and sometimes he wonders about what liz says and he wonders why that bothers him so he doesn't even yeah. know um you know how he doesn't even he no longer is in touch with his own human emotions and to me that's really the capstone of he's sitting in this beautiful utopia that he created above london and he just doesn't understand how how humanity works, how human emotions work. He doesn't even understand his own emotions anymore. Well, I mean, the closing line is sometimes I just wonder. And meanwhile, I'm wondering, what are we reading next week? Emil Ferris's My Favorite Thing is Monsters. And I am super excited about this. Emil Ferris is a first-time graphic novelist, but she's clearly an experienced illustrator, which you could know by well, reading her biography, but also just by glancing through the pages of My Favorite Thing is Monsters. This book is epic. It does so much. Um, it is at once a coming-of-age story. It is a noir, a mystery. 
and it is a Holocaust survival story. And simply flipping through the pages, you will understand how special it is. I know we're supposed to wait until next week to formally review it, but uh, the preview, this book is fantastic. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for tuning in. And Chandler, thanks so much for, uh, for, for reviewing Marvel Man with us. Yeah, this was terrific.